got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 162 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I tell you about something famous or infamous that happened in history. And then I tell you about what else was being reported in newspapers around the globe on the exact same day. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that sometimes the stories are funny. Sometimes they're tragic. Sometimes they're shocking. But they're always interesting. For today's famous date, we're going to travel back in time to one of my absolute favorite decades, the 1920s. I love reading about and studying the years that fall between the two world wars. Unfortunately, today's famous date isn't one about record-setting flights across oceans or best-selling jazz artists. It's a tragedy. Today's date is March 13, 1928, and I'm taking a headline from the Vizelia Times Delta out of Vizelia, California. This headline says, Hundreds of lives lost as Southern California Reservoir Dam collapses. Death toll mounting. Friends, this is the story of the St. Francis Dam Collapse. I've actually shared a couple of dam collapse stories since I started this podcast two and a half years ago, and this one is just as terrible and terrifying as the others, but I honestly don't hear it talked about very much. On the evening of March 12, 1928, people in the San Francisco Canyon were sound asleep in their beds. Then just three minutes before midnight, the all-too-familiar rumbling and shaking of an earthquake woke up many of the residents there. Except that time, it wasn't an earthquake at all. The St. Francis Dam had just broken, and they were about to be buried under 12.6 billion gallons of water. In 1920, the city of Los Angeles had a population of around 500,000 people. But in just 10 years, that number grew to over a million people. Everyone wanted to move to the beautiful city with great temperatures year-round. It wasn't too hot or too cold, and it didn't rain too much. And that was part of the problem. Much of the western United States is desert, and it can get very dry. Droughts aren't uncommon. The city knew that they were going to have a big problem if they didn't come up with a plan to get more water to the city. This is where a man named William Mulholland entered the picture. And yes, it's the man who the famous Mulholland Drive was named after. Anyway, Mulholland was an Irish immigrant who came to the U.S. at a young age and started working as a ditch digger. He eventually worked his way up the ranks until he was in charge of the water planning. He had a great idea to get water to the city. He planned to build an aquifer that would stretch well over 200 miles from Owens Lake, a lake that had plenty of clean water, all the way to the city of Los Angeles. Everything went as planned, and the aquifer was a great success. But the farmers in the area of the lake were not happy that the water they'd been using to keep their fertile soil growing wonderful crops was being diverted away. So they decided to start blowing up parts of the aquifer with dynamite. That was one problem. 
Another problem was when an earthquake struck the area and a lot of buildings were damaged. The aquifer turned out to be fine, but people, including Mulholland, were worried that another earthquake could damage it and then they'd be in big trouble. They needed to come up with a backup plan. Once again, Mulholland and his team went back to the drawing board and they decided to build five dams in the area to maintain the water supply. Now might be a good time to mention that William Mulholland never had any formal training as an engineer. Everything he knew and learned was on-the-job training. But despite the lack of official education, just like with the aquifer, the dams were super successful. So Mulholland decided to push his luck and build a sixth dam. That dam was going to be even bigger and more impressive. It was the St. Francis Dam, and it was less than 50 miles north of the city of Los Angeles. The St. Francis Dam was an arch-supported dam or a gravity dam, depending on which source you read. But I'm not going to go into the details of the design because that's boring. I'll just say that it was finished on May 4th, 1926. And the dam was nearly 200 feet tall and 700 feet long. It was big enough that it could hold 12 billion gallons of water. That was enough to supply all of the city of Los Angeles' water needs for two years. And everything with the St. Francis Dam operated smoothly for two years. Then, on March 12, 1928, Mulholland got a phone call telling him that there was a leak in the dam. He rushed to the site, but after he and some other men inspected it, they decided that the water wasn't muddy, which meant foundation material wasn't being washed away. A very good sign. Mulholland left the site and went about his day. The leak was something that could be dealt with later. Except later ended up being just a few hours. Three minutes before midnight, the dam burst. And, interestingly, nobody who saw the dam burst lived to tell about it, so there aren't any first-hand accounts. It's believed that the man who first spotted the leak, his son, and his girlfriend were all at the dam when it broke, but they would have been killed instantly. The water moved down the canyon at 18 miles per hour, crushing anything and everything in its path. Town after town was obliterated in seconds. As the water moved, it took all of that debris with it, making matters even worse since the debris acted like battering rams as it crashed into homes and buildings. Roads were washed away. Railroad lines were obliterated. Telegraph wires were destroyed. And basically every other form of communication. Most people died immediately, but a few were lucky enough to find things to grab onto and they rode it out in what would have been a more terrifying ride than any man-made structure at an amusement park. There was very little time to give warning before communities were hit, and the first warning didn't come until nearly an hour and a half after the dam burst. As soon as people were able, they tried their hardest to let their neighbors farther down the path of the water know what was coming their way. Some telephone operators started calling all the people they could in low-lying areas, and a couple members of the California Highway Patrol rode their motorcycles around with sirens wailing, yelling for residents to head for safety. 
At least one of those officers became known as the Paul Revere of St. Francis. It took six hours for the water to rush all the way from where the dam used to be, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And when the sun rose on the morning of March 13th, for the first time, people were able to see the destruction, and it was absolutely devastating. Thousands of people hurried to the site from all over to offer help in any way they could. Some sent food and supplies and money. And even Universal Studios sent big spotlights from their movie studios so that crews could work all through the night to save people still trapped in the debris. In all, 1,200 homes were destroyed. Thousands of livestock were killed. And for many days after the dam failed, bodies were found. Some were as far south as the Mexican border. The exact number of deaths is hard to pinpoint because there were a lot of undocumented workers in the area, but it's believed to be over 600 people. People who had loved Mulholland for all he had done to bring water to the area suddenly hated him, and they called for him to go on trial. Some even put signs in front of their homes saying, Kill Mulholland. Mulholland said, Don't blame anyone else. You just fasten it on me. If there was an error in human judgment, I was the human, and I won't try to fasten it on anyone else. On occasion like this, I envy the dead. Mulholland was eventually acquitted of any charges, and although he tried to resign, they wouldn't let him, and said other than the one failure, he'd worked for many decades to save people by bringing water to them. 68 years later, in 1995, a geological engineer did some research and discovered that the dam was built on the site of an ancient landslide. And with the technology available to them at the time, there was no way they could have known that. The flaws weren't necessarily with the dam, but rather the dam site. Either way, it was a very sad and tragic day in California when the St. Francis Dam broke. But, although the story filled newspapers across the country, it wasn't the only thing being printed on the pages. So, let's open some more newspapers and see what else we can find. For my first additional history story from March 13, 1928, I'm taking a headline from the Indianapolis Times out of Indiana. This front page headline right under a story about a certain dam bursting in California, and above a story of yet another train wreck, it says, One-Eyed War Hero Starts Ocean Dash. Now, I'm not going to lie, the One-Eyed War Hero sounded pretty intriguing, and this story is definitely that. But it's not just about the One-Eyed War Hero. And, in fact, another person involved in the story would eventually be the person most remembered for the incident. First, I'll tell you about the One-Eyed War Hero. His name was actually Captain Walter George Raymond Hinchliffe. That's a mouthful for sure. And since he had the nickname of Hinch, that's what I'm going to call him in this story. Hinch was born in Germany, but he moved to England with his family when he was just a child. He was very smart, and he excelled in academics. Hinch could speak four different languages. 
He joined the officer training corps while attending Liverpool College. And when he was just 19 years old, he was a second lieutenant. And then within a couple of years, he was promoted to the rank of lieutenant. He served in the Royal Artillery, and he served in the Royal Naval Air Service, all during World War I. Then, when the British decided to form an air force, he joined that too. In just a couple of months' time, he shot down five different planes. A pretty high number for back then. But then, everything changed right after he shot down that fifth plane. That same night, he was shot through the forehead and ended up crashing his airplane. Somehow, he managed to survive that crash, but he permanently lost the eyesight in one of his eyes, and he had to wear an eye patch for the rest of his life. But he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Because of his injury, Hinch was no longer able to fly with the military. But that didn't stop him from flying. He started flying for KLM and Imperial Airlines, and he holds the title of the first to do many things. For example, he was the first to fly airmail from England to the Netherlands, and he was the first to make nighttime flights over some routes with civilian passengers on board. Hinch knew how to fly over 50 different types of airplanes and was considered to be very knowledgeable. Well, March 13, 1928 was going to be a different flight for Hinch. It had been less than a year since Charles Lindbergh made his record-setting flight across the Atlantic, and rumors had been going around for a few weeks that Hinch was going to go for it and see if he could be the first to fly from east to west, a route that was supposed to be even harder because the wind wouldn't be in the pilot's favor. But he was keeping his plans kind of secretive. On the morning of the 13th, he secretly left an airdome in England in a black Stinson monoplane with gold wings. There were no big announcements, but people were soon reporting that they saw a plane following the route that would take him out over the sea. Sure enough, at 1.30 p.m., a lighthouse keeper reported that they saw a plane flying over the very southwest coast of Ireland, and then it turned out to sea, flying west. A little bit later, a French steamer reported seeing the plane over the ocean, but I'm not sure how far out Hinge was at that point. Now, this is where this story gets more interesting. When Hinch left, he was reported to have a passenger with him. The article whose headline I shared with you a minute ago said it was believed to be a male passenger, and later it was reported that someone named George Sinclair had signed the register. So why were people so excited about this attempt? After all, others had made attempts before. Well, it's because a couple of weeks before Hinch left on his east-to-west flight attempt, a newspaper broke the news that Elsie McKay was hoping to make an attempt, and if she was successful, she would be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, either as a passenger or as a pilot. And Elsie wasn't just some random woman. People already knew who she was. Elsie was born in India, and her father was an earl. He was also the chairman of a very successful shipping company, meaning he was very wealthy. Elsie was very spirited and loved to try new things. When she was in her early 20s, she eloped with an actor and then became an actress herself, 
using the stage name of Poppy Wyndham. Her wealthy family didn't like the path her life was taking and didn't approve of her marriage to Dennis, and they ended up disinheriting her. So, Elsie, still using the name of Poppy, decided to try something else, and she became the first female jockey in all of England, and even rode many horses on their way to victory. Well, after a few years, Dennis and Elsie decided to split up, and they got a divorce. Elsie decided it was time to return to her family, so she stopped acting, took her old name back, and tried yet another new thing. She became an interior decorator, mostly working for her father's shipping company, and she designed elaborate rooms and the interiors of multiple ships. But Elsie still wasn't content with all that she had in her life. So, in 1923, she decided to buy an airplane and learn how to fly. It was no secret that she someday wanted to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. One time, while she was flying as a passenger with another pilot who was doing some sort of difficult loop maneuver, Elsie's seatbelt broke, and she fell out of the airplane. Luckily, she was able to grab onto some sort of wire and held on with her body hanging outside the airplane until the pilot got the plane under control and she was able to climb back in. So, when the news broke a couple of weeks before Hinch made his transatlantic attempt that Elsie McKay was going to make an attempt, she was very angry. She had wanted to keep it secret from her father, who surely would try to stop her. But somehow, word got out to the presses, and they printed it in their newspapers. Elsie had wanted to secretly make the flight while her father was away on business in Egypt. Sure enough, Word got back to her father, and Elsie had to promise her family that she wouldn't try it. She was so angry that she threatened to sue the newspaper who broke the news if they mentioned anything about it again. Now, if you remember from a minute ago, the flight register listed Gordon Sinclair as the male passenger riding along with Hinch on March 13th. But, as I'm sure you've guessed, that was a pseudonym, and it was really Elsie McKay who was flying with him. It started out just a rumor that Elsie might be on board the plane. Nobody knew for sure, and most articles were saying just that. Elsie might be on board. People were shocked and surprised and very excited. They hoped it was true because they wanted Elsie to claim the title of first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Hours later, thousands of people started lining up in Long Island, New York. Word had reached the U.S. coast, and they were all hoping to witness Hinch and Elsie flying in from the sea. They were about to watch history being made. When Hinch and Elsie left England, the weather report was good, but by the time they left the coast of Ireland, it had started to snow, and visibility was very low. Out on the ocean, it was even worse. Well, Since Elsie and Hinch aren't household names, and since we know that Amelia Earhart holds the records of the first female passenger and the first female pilot to fly across the Atlantic, you can probably guess that things didn't go so well for the pair. People waited and waited and waited for them to land in New York, or maybe Canada, or anywhere along the coast. 
but they never did. And they didn't turn back and land in Europe either. The distinctive black and gold plane had completely disappeared. Within a day or two, it was obvious that the couple must have met with some sort of disaster. And I believe it was two days after they left, before it was even officially confirmed that Elsie was the passenger. Ships in the Atlantic were asked to watch for wreckage, but nobody saw anything. The mystery of what happened to them would remain unsolved for nearly a year and a half. Then, a steamship said that they saw a floating, wrecked airplane. But it was dark, and they weren't able to make any salvage efforts. And then, not long later, a piece of the plane, a piece that was identified as Hinch and Elsie's plane, washed up on shore in Ireland. A few years ago, a book was released called West Over the Waves, The Final Flight of Elsie McKay. You can read that if you want to know more about her fascinating life and tragic death. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Greenfield Daily Recorder out of Greenfield, Massachusetts. This headline says, A Clue That Failed. The headline first caught my eye because clue is spelled C-L-E-W. I'm not sure when the spelling changed to C-L-U-E, but I've seen it spelled with the E-W many, many times as I've searched through old newspapers while doing research for this podcast, and it always draws my attention. In this case, the clue that failed was referring to a tip that came into the police about the whereabouts of a girl who had been missing for months at that point. I'll give you more information on that clue in a minute, but first, I'll tell you about the actual disappearance. Frances St. John Smith was an 18-year-old girl going to college at Smith College in Massachusetts. Her father had a law degree from Harvard and was a well-known banker who had recently retired. Frances visited her family for the Christmas and New Year's holidays and seemed to be in great spirits while she was there. Then. Suddenly, in the middle of January 1928, Frances disappeared. Nobody had seen her since the afternoon of Friday the 13th. And yes, it was pointed out in newspapers that she disappeared on Friday the 13th. That really stuck out to me since I'm currently working on a novel about a girl who disappeared on Friday the 13th. Anyway, when Frances couldn't be found, a notice with her description was quickly sent out and everyone was on the lookout for the young woman. A woman saw the notice and said that a girl who she was absolutely positive was Frances had stopped by her home on the evening of Saturday the 14th. Frances wanted to know where the Sophia Smith homestead was and asked directions from the woman. Sophia Smith was the founder of Smith College, and it was really common for girls to make the trek to her homestead in the summer. Except it wasn't summer, and it seemed odd to the woman that a girl would be there alone asking to see the homestead in the middle of the winter. But the woman pointed Frances in the direction of the homestead site anyway. The people who owned the homestead reported that Frances never made it there, even though it can be accessed by foot or by car. Somehow, 
between the first woman's home and the homestead, Frances St. John Smith had disappeared. The biggest question was whether she had purposely disappeared or if something bad happened to her. Nobody could remember seeing any cars in the area that night, so it didn't seem that someone would have taken her. But where could she have gone? Well, some of Frances's friends and her mother visited Frances's dorm room to try to piece together where she might have gone. Frances's mother insisted she smelled some sort of strange chemical smell, and the other girls with her smelled it too. They wondered if Frances had gotten something to use to commit suicide. At the time of the first articles, it was said that they were thinking of bringing in a chemist to identify the odor. But I never saw it mentioned again, so I don't know if that ever happened. They did ask local pharmacists, and none of them had sold any sort of poison to a girl in the weeks leading up to Frances's disappearance. Anyway, people at the college were really worried because another girl had disappeared from Smith College two years earlier, and she had still never been found. That girl, Alice Corbett, had completely vanished. Everyone seemed to have a theory on what happened to her. Frances's parents thought she went for a walk in the woods, and because of a disjointed knee problem she had, she might have fallen and wouldn't have been able to get back up and go for help. Some thought a car drove by and offered her a ride, and maybe she met with foul play that way. But Frances's parents insisted she was way too shy to ever accept a ride from a stranger. The college officials, and most of the police force, were in the camp that believed Frances committed suicide. They said her grades had been slipping, and she seemed distressed by it. So, they drained nearby ponds, but because it was winter, they couldn't drain the biggest of them. They took grappling hooks and dragged the Connecticut River. And the fact that she didn't take any clothes with her, and her wallet was still in her dorm room, added to their theory, even though they couldn't find her in the water. Frances' parents owned a summer home in Amherst, and when Frances couldn't be found anywhere else, they hurried there to see if maybe their daughter was hiding out in a place that would have been familiar to her. 200 people came out to search in Amherst, including people that went to Amherst College, the Massachusetts Agricultural College, and the Boy Scouts. Again, they found nothing. Frances's father wondered if maybe there was some sort of secret romance, and he questioned her friends about that. But they didn't seem to know about any men in Frances's life. Now, sometimes police departments will only half-heartedly search for someone when they think that the person left on purpose. But that wasn't the case with Frances. They looked and looked and looked and tried every single angle they could think of. They even went through all the trash that had been produced by the entire college in the days leading up to the disappearance, hoping to find a scrap of paper that would have a clue on it. And even though airplane travel was still fairly new, they hired someone to take them up in a plane so they could search by air. Then a clerk in a clothing store in Boston came forward. He said he'd seen Frances's picture, and he was sure it was a girl that he'd recently sold a pair of tennis shoes to. He told her it was a strange time to buy something like that, unless she lived somewhere warmer, since tennis shoes weren't everyday footwear in the 1920s. And Frances told him that she was going to Florida. 
Well, since Francis couldn't be found, and there was no proof, and only a flimsy reason to suspect suicide, they decided someone must have taken her, and they thought a ransom would come in. The family was good friends with a senator from Maine, and he got involved, talking to the governor and trying to solicit as much help as possible for the family. Again, more clues and tips came in after this. Multiple people insisted a girl fitting her exact description was seen asking for directions to the subway. She was described as very timid, which would have fit Frances's personality. Someone else insisted they saw her sitting in the front seat of a sedan with a young man, powdering her nose, and looking as if she was trying to hide her face from people outside. Someone else said they saw Frances on a train with a middle-aged woman. That girl seemed nervous, and when she laughed, she seemed almost hysterical. Another man backed up that train story and called in the same exact tip. Still, another person said that a girl fitting Frances's description had come to the Salvation Army Employment Bureau in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, looking for a job as a secretary. When the manager asked for an address, the girl told him she didn't have one because she wouldn't be staying in Pittsfield if she didn't get a job that night. And still another person said that he worked at the passport office, and a girl matching Frances's description had come in and applied for a passport so she could go to Paris. Well, it took a while for the police to sort through the dozens and dozens of clues that came in, including some that were considered to be fake ransom notes. But no matter how many leads the police followed, they couldn't find Francis, and pretty soon months had passed. That's when the March 13, 1928 article, with the headline I read you at the beginning of this additional history story, was printed. A train conductor was claiming that he had carried a passenger that fit Francis's description on his train that left on January 14th from Massachusetts. The girl rode the train all the way to Montreal, Canada. But the conductor didn't stop there. He said he knew exactly where she was. He said, quote, I know her present address, and I am willing to lead any responsible party to where she is staying. She is in a convent in Quebec but it is not located in Montreal. The clue was very promising, but the more the conductor was interviewed, the more it seemed flimsy, to say the least. The conductor gave different stories to different reporters, too. To one, he said that he had written a letter to Francis's parents, but he didn't know their address, so he never sent it. To another reporter, he said that he'd spoken with representatives of the family, but the family denied ever speaking with him. Pretty soon, the man's claim fell apart, and it was determined that Francis was not in a Canadian convent. It wasn't until March of 1929, more than a year after her disappearance, that an answer to where Francis had gone was finally found. Some fishermen found a body in the Connecticut River, and people wondered if it could be Francis or Alice Corbett, the girl who had disappeared two years before Francis. Sure enough, the body was wearing some sort of retainer, something Francis was said to have worn. And when her dentist compared his records to that of the body, he said he was sure the body belonged to Francis. She was buried in Amherst, Massachusetts, and the family finally had an answer to where their daughter was. But they never did get an answer to what happened to her. 
The mystery of whether Francis jumped into the river to commit suicide, or if she met with foul play by someone who purposely threw her in the water, will probably always stay just that, a mystery. Okay, since this podcast episode is turning out to be really long, I'll try to keep our third and final additional history story kind of short. No promises, though. The first two stories had to do with missing women. This story is actually about something bad that happened to another woman. I'm taking the headline from the March 13th, 1928 edition of the News and Observer out of Raleigh, North Carolina. It says, Attack on Girl, Still Mystery. Interestingly enough, this story began almost the same time as that of Francis St. John Smith. On January 23, 1928, the 16-year-old adopted daughter of a millionaire shoe manufacturer, a girl named Nancy Davison, stumbled to the doorstep of a home in Richmond, Virginia. There, she collapsed and lost consciousness. Nancy's skull had been crushed, and it was clear that she was suffering from exposure as it was a very cold night. When she was found, Nancy was quickly taken to a hospital, but she remained unconscious. Doctors treated her wounds, did what they could for her, and then they said that all they could do was wait for her to wake up. But she didn't wake up. The doctors decided to perform an operation to take some of the pressure off of her skull and it seemed to be successful. But still, she didn't wake up. Meanwhile, police in Richmond scoured the town for clues. Nobody had seen what happened to the girl. She'd been visiting her aunt's house, but left to return home around 8 p.m. It wasn't until 4 a.m. that she was found on the doorstep. Nobody was coming forward with any information as to what happened to her in that eight-hour period. But the owners of the home where she was found said that they'd heard a car drive up and stop. The man looked out of his window and saw a man wearing a hat and a coat get out of the car, either a Buick or a Chrysler. Then he ran down their front steps, got back into the car, and drove away. The man left his window and went to the front door, and that's where he found Nancy. The authorities believed that the man in the car had found her wandering and dropped her off at the home anonymously so he wouldn't be blamed for whatever happened to her. Or they believed it was possible that the owner of the car was the one who had done something to her. Maybe she'd been hit by his car. Maybe someone had purposely attacked her. Doctor said her only injury was the skull fracture, which could have come from being hit by a car or struck by a blunt object. Unless someone came forward, police worried they might never get answers. And detectives were particularly interested in the fact that when Nancy left her aunt's house, she was wearing a little black hat. But when she was found, she didn't have the hat with her. They were sure that if they could find the hat, they'd find their answers. So they searched and searched and sent out a plea for residents to keep their eyes open for the little black hat. And then, suddenly, a few days later, the hat was found. But it was found in an area that had already been very thoroughly searched, with big spotlights and multiple people. That brought even more questions. 
was the hat overlooked the first time somehow? Or did someone come and plant it there afterward to try to get rid of evidence? Well, Nancy Davison remained in her coma for seven weeks. Then, finally, on today's episode date of March 13, 1928, the police were able to question her about the night nearly two months earlier and what really happened to her. Everyone, both law enforcement and citizens, were eager to hear the results of her questioning. And Nancy couldn't remember anything. The last thing she remembered was leaving the high school earlier in the day, and her next memories were of waking up in the hospital many weeks later. All that time, people waited for answers, and she wasn't able to give them. And, from what I read, no answers were ever found. And the mystery of what happened to Nancy Davison on that wintry night was never solved. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from page 4 of the Bellingham Herald out of Bellingham, Washington. This ad is for a Piggly Wiggly grocery store. And I thought you might like to know what kind of prices people were paying for their meat back then. People could get two pounds of pork steaks for just 35 cents. A pound of bacon was 33 cents. Of course, in today's money, that would come out to over $5 a pound. So maybe we're not so bad off after all right now. Friends, thanks for listening to today's episode. Did you know about the St. Francis Dam collapse? Or is this the first time you learned of it? Let me know what you think of this episode or about any subjects you want me to cover by reaching out at additionalhistory at gmail.com. Join me over in the Additional History Facebook group for more information and pictures of some of the stories I share here. And then come back here this Thursday for a mini episode about another infamous incident that happened at the same time as the St. Francis Dam collapse. And, as always, I'll be back on Monday with another full-size episode. That day, I'm going to tell you about a fun, famous history event. Talk to you later.